Today I talked, this episode I talked to Benny Pekala, Pekala. This episode I talked to Benny Pekala. Benny was in Madison, he's from the Midwest, and that is how I learned of him through LinkedIn when I saw that he is, was trying to solve deep fakes. This conversation was in late summer of 2022, and I wanted to see what solutions Benny had for the deep fake problem. He isn't working on that anymore. At the time, even, he was transitioning into helping businesses create NFTs for their business, which I think kind of highlights what he was trying to do to solve the deepfake problem. Uh, an interesting quote from the end of the conversation was, we are actively onboarding influencers, I'm paraphrasing here, to mint their identities onto the blockchain. Taken out of context, it's a funny statement and lends itself well to the absurdity of the time we live in, perhaps. Um, only if you take it literally, <laughs> like I do, I guess. <laughs> Meaning that we're so flippantly talking about identity and what it means in this virtual age and the virtualization of the identity. It's just fascinating subject matter. I consider myself, I guess, a humanist. Like, I'm human first, and I think that our biology matters. And uh, I think that's important in the upcoming conversations I'll be posting and hosting ones that I have not recorded yet. Um, in, in this endless digitization of our culture and, you know, as the internet kind of unfolds, which I think is weird, but maybe the proper way to look at it, unfolds upon our culture, our lives, and our perceptions. I think people are going to have to take sides in a sense, like philosophy becomes ever more crucial in navigating how you feel about these changes in culture. So anyway, I think this conversation could be interesting if you are interested in the deepfake issue. I don't think that the solutions provided gave me peace of mind. I still think deepfakes are an incredible issue. And now even more pertinent today, February 22nd, 2023, as... ChatGPT is in the headlines and these artificial intelligence and these generative art tools making deep fakes more accessible and essentially eroding trust in the digital spaces that we inhabit. I think and hope it's going to drive people back toward in-person behavior until we can work it out or, you know, Bill Gates works it out for us or whatever that looks like. Yeah, I think we're headed toward some more fragmented social interactions where we're kind of 
relegated to what's accessible uh, geographically. Again, we're going to go into kind of an isolation mode over the next five to 15 years. And I think we'll work it out and we'll kind of emerge from that with a newfound trust or a new system of trust uh, for these digital spaces. So that's my thought. Would love to hear yours. But I'm also busy. <laughs> so here's Benny Picala. What's up? I'm here with Benny Pakala. He is trying to master the issue uh, that Kendrick Lamar just brought attention to of deep fakes. And uh, he's also making NFTs for businesses. We are connected through some mutual friends through the Wisconsin startup scene. And uh, yeah, let's start out with um, who, who are you, Benny? You're living in Florida. You're from Minneapolis. What's kind of your backstory? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Midwesterner. Um, it's, it's fun now that I'm in Florida, the personality speaks out a little bit more. So I'm Minnesota boy through and through. But yeah, I went to school at UW-Madison in Wisconsin. And that was where kind of started my entrepreneurial journey building apps. So me and a good friend, we started kind of a software development agency where we were like, hey, if you're a startup and you need an app, we can help you build it. Um, and then we started taking a left turn um, into both identity, leading us to the deep fakes, as well as towards uh, Web3, so NFT technology and dApps. And kind of throughout that journey, you know, and through the pandemic, I ended up making my way from Madison, Wisconsin, down to Miami. So now I'm here in Magic City. I, I really enjoy Miami. But the best part about kind of being in, in what we're doing and you know, working in Web3, working in tech is our, our team is remote all over the U.S. So even as I've been able to move, we've been able to kind of stay focused on um, bringing apps to market and now NFT collections and dApps together with our partners and launching this product centered around identity and helping people to make sure that if there is a deep take out there that they can be spotted and corrected. Awesome. So when you were making apps, um, I mean, you're still doing aspects of this uh, at Madison. When was that? Like, w what year are we talking here? Yeah. Um, 2018, or I think when we started really going out outside of academia a little bit. And I'll never forget kind of some of those first times when I was like, all right, how are we going to do this? And I literally like just Google searched like entrepreneur events, you know, or I, that was the beginning um, and it started going to events. Yeah, probably like 2017. So it's been a, a quick journey till here. How, how old were you when you started doing that? Yeah, college. I was a big math and science person in high school. And then college, I got into computer science. So it was probably sophomore year of college that we got really in, in, engaged. Awesome. So you must be 25, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um Cool, cool. I just turned 28, so similar. It took me a little longer to figure out how to get started in my space, but not my space. You know, that was dead already, but no, I'm just kidding. 
Um, so yeah, you're in the spot, Miami, uh, big kind of, they're investing in crypto and tech and, um, obviously beautiful city. Um, how has that pivot gone over the last two years? Yeah, the pandemic, I think changed a lot and where I lived was a big part of that. So prior to the pandemic, Wisconsin. And originally when the pandemic had actually moved down to Austin, down to Austin, Texas, I figured um, it was time to go try a winter that wasn't so cold. <laughs> um, and so then I'm from Austin, I came here to Miami. And so I, I think there's a lot that I've learned about what is unique about any city. You know, I think there's a lot just based on unique industries the climate, you know, Miami is definitely an amazing climate. Um, so as far as what I really liked, you know, and, but also kind of found difficult to get familiar with is, is kind of the, the big city um, dynamic, you know, the big, big city in Miami. So there's a lot of different things to do, a lot of different things to see for, right, for me as a Midwesterner, it's a little bit all over. So there's just tons to explore and I'm kind of always seeing new things. What I like most about Miami right now is with, you know, kind of the displacement of tech jobs and with the growth of crypto, there's a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators kind of like me that are, that are coming here. And so kind of being in Wynwood, Miami, which is a neighborhood I spend a lot of time in and being around some of the tech events and, and things here in town, I can kind of feel a, a magic in the air. I can kind of feel creativity and people trying new things and asking, Hey, well, what if, you know, what if we tried that? Um, and so I, out of that part, I I'm just really head over heels with, with the city of Miami. I, I find it really supportive. Everybody here has been really welcoming. Could, could not have had a better experience. Awesome. Do you, um, are you familiar with, uh, Diso? Yeah, I am. Oh, nice. I have a buddy, um, who's a developer at Diso and, we actually just happened to be in Miami last year during the Bitcoin conference for a buddy's bachelor party. It was coincidental. And I got to meet some of like his friends and in, in the space and stuff and, you know, see him in that, you know, I guess out of their shell element. And it was, it was pretty cool. But um, yeah. So what kind of businesses, like how big is your team working on the NFT stuff? Like what kind of businesses are, are diving into this and what kind of applications are you uh, crafting? Yeah, we've got kind of a dream team of about seven people, which lets us really put a lot of, um, a lot of power and you know, a lot of developers behind a project, also letting us stay very nimble, which is great mm -hmm. and work really closely and kind of have those personal relationships. What we're seeing a lot of is um, people that have an audience building NFT collections and similarly, uh, people that have a community or are launching new communities, doing that through an NFT collection. At a larger context though, what's kind of got us excited is seeing startups that are in all industries 
um, and I'll kind of name a few in a second, um, but kind of say, hey, how do we do the same thing we did before, um, but this time with NFTs, blockchain, cryptocurrency, with Web3 technology? And so while there still is a lot of you know, innovation there within NFT collections themselves, some of these that are cool are, are revolve around shared ownership or you know, fractionalized ownership and revolve around um, like audience engagement, right? Kind of like bring the audience, you know, and people that, so, so as an example, um, real estate, right? You know, like real estate is an industry that is not very accessible. It, you know, it generally is one where people that don't have a lot of education or don't have a lot of wealth find it harder to get involved. And so there's a tremendous opportunity for NFTs and for some of these new types of technology to disrupt real estate. Um, but from a day-to-day -day level, yeah, I would say by volume, um, a lot of community building and a lot of people with existing audiences that are finding new ways to monetize those audiences and, and engage with them. So for the real estate thing, um... I think I've heard something along these lines of like the fractional ownership, um, right? And you can kind of, it's almost like a timeshare, but instead of paying for a timeshare, you're paying for a fraction of the ownership. And the accessibility aspect is that it's, there's a marketplace. Uh, the NFT or the crypto create, makes it easier for a developer to create a marketplace where these things can be, more actively shared rather than meeting with 12 different people about a building in the Bahamas and um, getting everyone to sign a contract. Uh, is that kind of how the real estate could be disrupted? Is that? Yeah. And I think you touched on, on a few things. So two that I'll separate one being the fractionalized ownership itself. Um, I think tokenization would be another kind of term that kind of describes this, where you can take really anything, but in this case, right, ownership in an apartment and represent that as a token. So in doing that, just, you know, all other things created equal, um, it's now more accessible because people that otherwise couldn't have invested in buying an entire apartment can now trade parts of that token, which represent that. So tokenization is one part of, is one business model within Web3 that we're seeing people experiment with. The other, as you mentioned, is the secondary market. So this is another kind of benefit of Web3 technology where there is more ownership, direct ownership given to the people that hold something in such a way that, yeah, they can more easily sell it to others than if it was maybe something that, you know, I think maybe in the real estate example, instead of having to go, you know, work with a broker and, you know, go through a real estate agent and list your property. In this case, it's much easier to say, hey, all I really need is to come to a fair price and to exchange with someone on a decentralized market. So similarly as before, I mean, in, and in that case, all things created equal, What's better about that model is that it allows for a better market efficiency. 
So it allows for more sellers and more buyers that otherwise wouldn't have transacted had they had those barriers. Mm -hmm. So in, in each situation, there's a lot of opportunity, but also still a lot of red tape. I mean, real estate is something where, you know, I think one of the things that I'd, I'd caution to is like, well, you know, you still do have to know who people are in real estate. Like the U.S. government doesn't just let anybody buy a condo. You know, like you do still have to do what's called KYC, right? And and, and there are some elements of the model that are, are still being worked out. But certainly tokenization, as well as creating a secondary market, I'm excited to see in real what, estate. What's KYC? KYC stands for Know Your Customer. Oh, so okay. I think... It, interesting way to explain it is that like within crypto one of the benefits is being anonymous right owning your own identity being being capable of creating you know a brand new identity that that you know that's not your government identity right so there's a lot of benefits to that um but then when it comes time to put your name on the ownership document of a real estate property um that concept comes into conflict with the law. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's probably a larger conversation over, you know, where is regulation coming in crypto? But especially in this example, what, what what a company needs to do if they're like, okay, well, we we want both here, right? We want to be in compliance with the law, but we also want to enable people to access these benefits of having their own identity and being able to purchase these things through Web3. In order to bridge that gap, they have to do a know your customer. So they have to say, hey, I know that you'd like to be anonymous, but yeah. too bad, I need your, your, your information for the IRS and then they'll gather that information. Okay, cool. So I think we're dancing around um, all these things and where they come together, which is around maybe identity and, um, you know, between deep fix, NFTs, uh, regulation, all this stuff. But I want to come at it from whatever happened, what was it, Tuesday or something? Uh, the Luna thing crashed and um, I followed it. Headline wise, I had a winemaker who I was interviewing yesterday, randomly know a shit ton about it, tell me about it. <laughs> so I'm like through secondary, you know, I'm a couple steps removed. But why don't you, have you been watching this? Have you been talking to people about it? And if so, is this not where regulation comes knocking on the door? Like what's kind of, what's happening here? Absolutely. Um and perhaps a, a kind of a short, just, well, what happened before I start to kind of answer that is perfect. Um, Terra um, is an algorithmic stable coin and all stable coins are tied to the U S dollar in a, in a way where one coin equals one U S dollar. The difference with Terra was that it's algorithmic meaning that what's actually tying them together is is not is an algorithm and you know i'll maybe save the details of that but a very complicated algorithm is what's tying these together that that when the supply of it's it, um maybe to appear back later just a little bit more so within terra the algorithm it uses is is essentially a balance of the scales so it has two internal coins that can be exchanged and by keeping the scales balanced, by exchanging one or, or you know, burning one and retrieving dollars, but by keeping these balanced, that's how it's able to accomplish one coin equals one US dollar. Mm -hmm. And what happened, essentially that algorithm broke down. So due to 
some just pretty volatile trading conditions. Um, essentially, there was a run on the bank, you know, and the algorithm that kept this balance between, hey, if one of these gets a little out of balance, then let's adjust, that keeps the equilibrium, um, wasn't able to keep up with the amount of people that wanted to just pull out. Hmm. Can, so, okay. yeah. Biggest thing that pops in my mind is like, who cares, I guess? Because it's like there's 8,000 different coins and, and whatever. It's like, okay, Bitcoin and Ethereum to me are the two biggest ones. And it's like, why do these stable coins it seems like okay we have this stable coin and there's a there's a us dollar and there's uh you know a, a coin and they're attached then there's also algorithmic stable coins and it's like cool so we know that 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 doesn't always work like that's all we learn is that like do we need an algorithmic one that's tied to the us dollar do we or is it more about luna that's what it sounds like it's more like we thought luna was more stable and it's not yeah, um, I I think it's true that do we need is perhaps the wrong question. I think the question is, how do we create coins that can benefit from the security, the ownership of crypto, but also be pegged to the dollar? And that's where you're saying, okay, well, one of the things we tried was an algorithmic stablecoin. Does the fact that this that this mistake happened to mean that that algorithm you know it definitely means that that particular attempt had flaws, right? You know there there were there were risks that weren't managed. Um, but the the question of how do we give consumers a way to invest in coins and use those coins while maintaining their tie to the dollar is one that all of these coins are answering. Isn't, so you ask kind of, okay, do we need one? Probably not, but yeah. Yeah. Isn't the point of crypto to kind of like, you know, decentralize money? So like pegging it to the dollar, doesn't that just kind of like, doesn't that just kind of fly in the face of like, what's the benefit? Why not just have a dollar or run your debit card? For these yeah. coins, I get the general application stuff for, other coins and stuff. I just don't get why, why, what's the value in a dollar pegged coin other than to say we did it. Transactions, the, the everyday use case. So uh, a real example is, um, and let me try to think of one from, yeah. So from a project that we're working on, um, yeah, kind of trying to save, save the right details is that there is a need to, um, for everybody that buys a part of this NFT collection, there is a compliance need to record exactly how much money they spent. And additionally, the clients want to use US dollars. It's easiest for them. It's the easiest way for them to buy into the collection is to just say, hey, give me my bank account. Give me my credit card. I want to use, so I, they want to use US dollars and there's a strong need to be compliant with exactly how much money they spend. Now, those two things being known, this is an NFT collection. So we know that at the end of the day, we want them to be able to own these decentralized assets. Okay, so how do we go from 
hey, the IRS needs to know the details and they want to pay with their credit card and bridge that gap with, all right, well, now they're owning something that's on Ethereum. And that's where the utility of saying, okay, well, actually what will happen is in that initial purchase, they're going to purchase these in USD coin, which, which is a coin that's pegged to the dollar. I and get. okay, well, at, at its, you know, at that first level, that doesn't really do much. That's just saying, okay, well, I, I had $5. Now I have five USD coin, but now we can trade that and we can put that on Ethereum. And the whole uh, time we can maintain that compliance with knowing exactly how much, how valuable it is. Okay. I get it. Yeah. I, I was forgetting about the chain aspect, the, the validation across multiple, you know, uh, nodes or whatever. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So now you can have your thing that's built on Ethereum and it can be like valued in U S dollars seamlessly. Right. Um, okay, that makes sense. So um, before we get too much into, because uh, I, I really want to talk like um, future, uh, what it might look like kind of stuff, but related to all this, I want, tell me about the deep fake stuff. What got you into it? Um, where are you at with it? And like, how confident are you that we're going to be able to figure out um, deep fakes. And if you could explain first, like what a deep fake is. Absolutely. Um, a deep fake is a representation that, that is a fake. Typically when people say, okay, well, I'm looking at a deep fake, they're looking at a person that's being imitated. And so with that, like right now, that would be like, well, what if I'm not actually Benny Pakala? What if I'm Joe Schmo, and I'm using a video filter with an advanced AI protocol over here, and you can't see it, you know, and I'm mirroring it here, that would be a deep fake. So, so it's video specific, though, right? This is the trick. Yeah, technically, any representation that's imitating someone is a deep fake. So you could do a deep fake audio track, you know, you can cover a phone call where you're trying to make your voice sound like someone um, within kind of most of most of the conversation around deep fakes, I think it's helpful to think of it as a video because it kind of shows you that, yeah, like even video, any, anything can be imitated if somebody goes through enough effort to, to imitate you. Yeah. So kind of, kind of, um, terrifying in a lot of ways. Cause it brings up the question, like, what is truth? You know, I think, uh, a, a famous example, um, there's been a lot of like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan audio, uh, fakes where they load a shit ton of audio into, uh, an AI algorithm, whatever, however they do it. And they make them say weird things that they've never actually said before. Um, most of the time it's, it's, well, it's been used for entertainment so far. So, um, and then Kendrick on Monday, I think launched, um, the heart part five and his, face was morphing into uh you know nipsey hustle and kanye and will smith and um but i and i think some people see that and they're like okay that's just like uh you know computer graphics movies have been able to do this forever the problem is is this stuff is getting more accessible the cost is being you know the cost is 
more accessible. And I think people are also putting famous people on like porn. I'm pretty sure that's a thing that's happening. Um, so yeah. Um, what got you concerned if you are concerned at all and what are you guys working on to help the issue? Yeah. Our story started with a scam call to my co-founder's grandma. So someone had called her imitating my co-founder and kind of a, a classic scam line, you know, of saying, Hey, you know, something really terrible happened. Um, please don't tell anybody about this. And luckily, um, grandma was very smart and caught the attack. That being said, that's what turned our eye on to saying, okay, well, how are we protecting people in that situation? As, as you know, me and my co-founder being builders of technology, we're like, okay, well, what, what could we do here to, to prevent that? That got us looking down the rabbit hole. And we started to look at where are people being frauded by people imitating each other? Short answer, a lot of places, right? So while, you know, we like to think, hey, you know, this, you know, some of this technology is still coming. Some of it's already here, right? There are attacks on businesses, on individuals every day. It's a, dare I say, like, I think a trillion dollar global market, you know, like of fraud where you're imitating someone else and getting someone to engage in, you know, paying some money or, or, or doing something nefarious. Um, so that's what got us looking. And as we looked around and we looked at what identity means, that was a difficult question to ask, you know, what, what does it mean to be who you are online and how is that changing? Um, we kind of started to look at, well, what can we do to preserve that even assuming that technology continues at this pace? So assuming that we get to a point where I can, with the click of a button, I can imitate anyone on this earth. Okay, well, what does it mean for me to truly be who I say I am? And the more we thought about this, um, we think it, we know that it lies in like proving who you are in real time. Because, you know, a video of me, right, from the past is not necessarily the same thing as me right now. So what we're launching, um, and we're kind of onboarding people who have been attacked by people that were imitating others um, is a tool where you can mark yourself as like a verified identity. So like a blue label for Instagram, for example. And as someone with a, with a, with a verified identity, other people can at any time look up your information and see only what's verified. And if you've said it that way, they can make a request in real time to say, hey, Benny, is this really you? What that prevents against um, and the influencers that we're onboarding is if you, if you are an activist or you are somebody who's being imitated. So, you know, so maybe this happens to some people who have really large followings on social media. This happens regularly where they'll have somebody who will imitate their profile, reach out to their followers and try to say, hey, I'm this person, please send this money. In that situation, the influencer can now say, hey, before, you know, anytime that you hear from me, anytime you hear from my page, 
make sure to look for the blue logo. Make sure to look for my verified seal. And with that, anybody who otherwise would have been tricked by the attack can catch and find out that that information is not authentic. So it almost sounds like um, clear, which is like the validation thing when you go through the TSA airport. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. And we're thinking forwards to a decentralized internet as well. And that's kind of what separates us from other identity providers is that we're very much um, asking this question in the context of, all right, how, how do I prove that I really am who's at that wallet address? I really am this NFT holder. I really am this person that not only is the correct person on Twitter, the correct person on Facebook, the correct person at the airport, but also trying to help people protect their identities in these new spaces. So um, it seems it seems like pretty inevitable that if we want to keep having these technologies, like if we want to have them at all, because they all have exploitabilities and they're all expensive to keep safe, um, you know, Apple is known for maybe having some of the better security on their products. And I'm sure they spend over a billion dollars a year, like making that happen, you know? So it seems inevitable that your identity is going to have to be a technological, like there's going to be a technological aspect to your identity and it's going to have to be like in your person, whether it's like Elon Musk brain chip or, you know, whatever, is that kind of how you see it? Or is there a way around it? That's a curious question. Um, the globe, the, yeah, like the universal global identifier, right? <laughs> if you're a computer scientist, right? Like, um, universal ID, the truly universal ID. I, I think the end game is multiple identities. So for example, I might say, Hey, you know, like I have pr private information, you know, I have my messages, I have parts of how I interact online that I very much want to be anonymous and does they deserve to be. And I have other parts of my identity, such as maybe what my, you know, what I do with my company, you know, or what I'm transacting with on blockchain that are very much public or, you know, social media profiles are a great example of this. I do believe that we'll be able to keep each of these identities separate. And so to that point, perhaps, you know, yeah, some people who have a large Twitter following or, you know, they have a platform that has an associated identity. Maybe there is value for them carrying around an identifier that, that connects with those that allows them to log in the tap of a button. Or I recently heard about somebody who had their contact information on an RFID chip on their fingernail. So they were able to go, Hey, you want it? You want my number and tap the phone. And it, the coolest thing, right? It's absolutely provides a lot of value to those parts of the identity that are public. Um, but I also think that that's 
it's important, you know, as humans, as biological beings that we keep, we keep some of that very private and very separated from those things. And so in that light, I think that we will be able to have kind of multiple identities. And I know kind of, as we touch on, um, I think education might be the last thing that I'd want to kind of throw, throw a bone in for, I think any new technology presents new problems. And this is certainly one that not only will there be technology, but there is a lot of education that we need to do as a culture, as a society to learn how to coexist with that um, and understand these things that are new to us. Okay, so multiple identities, the same thing as having like a parody Twitter account five years ago, is that what you mean, but like in a VR space, essentially, or like, what do you mean? I think it's more like having multiple Gmail addresses and some of them you might use for your social media profiles. And the other one might be the Gmail that you created when you were 13 years old, you know, and it's, and it has the weirdest little tagline, but you still have it plugged into, you know, to some of your services. I think it looks more like that where it's like, we may have, I you know, our main email account. However, we'll still have a need to keep some things on another account. You know, for me with my main email account, it's very much tied to my business. So I have other needs to tie things to my personal account. And in that setting, not necessarily a parody account, although you certainly could use it as one. So, but you wouldn't need to verify multiple identities. You'd only need to verify your your one identity or whatever your individual identity that's attached to the account right because that's how it currently works yeah i with any verification i think context is important um on some platforms all you need to know is certain parts of that identity for example um you might need to know like the i am not a robot right the recapture mm -hmm. It, it doesn't need to know exactly who you are, right? But it is running a, a check and saying, hey, within this context, I need to know this much. I need to know that I, you know, that you can't be tricked by these simple learning algorithms, you know, like visual algorithms, right? Like you need to know you're a person. So I think it's more like that where you might have a need to be verified separately for these different identities. And maybe one of them is the one that you need to apply for housing right? Or for government assistance, but that might be separate from your university ID. Um, and in some of those things that kind of already exists where you'll have different identities within different platforms, but that's kind of how I see the end game of kind of segmenting identity in a way where we are both in control of it, but also it is publicly accessible when that's beneficial to everybody. Is that any different than how it already is though? very similar. I think what the, the main layer that's missing is calling out the imposters, more or less, is, is, is kind of the moderation setting. I mean, I think right now we're seeing across a lot of platforms, a, a conversation about how much do we moderate? What, what is misinformation? Right, we're seeing a lot of conversation about what what do we use as a society that wants to use these technologies to keep ourselves safe from 
misinformation from a deep fake attack. And we haven't, you know, I, I maybe I'd be happy to talk about this to anybody that's curious, but I don't think we've solved it yet. And when we are able to introduce that layer, I think what it will look like, that's kind of why we're building these blue labels is it'll look like, hey, this within this context, and you know, maybe you're not getting my social security number, but but you're getting within this context, you can trust that what I'm saying is authentic. And that I think will change from context to context and from platform to platform. Um, but it'll be universal in a way where somebody who is familiar with this system on social media, for example, can also use this metric to verify what they see on television or to verify what they see in their email inbox. That part I believe is missing. And when we do see it, I, when we do kind of answer the larger conversation about as consumers, what do we feel comfortable with on platforms? Mm -hmm. I am very confident that we'll see more standardization across different, different platforms. Okay. So I think, so I think if I'm not mistaken, this is kind of what like Elon Musk will try to do to Twitter. Like he's apparently claiming that he's going to verify everybody and bots are going to be kicked off. That's kind of like one of the things if it happens, right? Okay. Yeah, it is. Um, okay. So, and yeah, go ahead. Well, so I just wanted to, so that's cool for, for, um, for validating like one time. So you mentioned like validating in real time um, and then protecting against deep fakes. So like it's to me, I guess the reality of deep fakes confirms all of reality, I guess, which is that you never truly know, you know, it could be, but it could not be but it very much so makes real that anybody could claim that's not actually me. That's fake. So you can almost, I, I could see the future becoming like, you know, it, it sends you, Hey Benny, here's a video of you like um, urinating in public. Is this you? I could see, you know, if you thought the video was funny or something, you'd be like, yeah, that's me whether it was you or not. But if you didn't, you could say, no, it's not me, whether it's you or not. So it's like, that doesn't solve the validation problem. It just gives you the option to like, claim whether it was you or not. Does that make sense? Like, is there a solution to, is there a way to tell if something is a deep fake? Or is it more confirmation? Yeah. That's a good, good question. I think the story is yes, there are ways to tell. There are a lot of advanced computer vision models, essentially algorithms. They, they can say, hey, input image, input video, input audio, and they can try to reverse engineer it, right? So they can assume that it's a deep fake and then try to check that. And that being said, you are correct that there is a little bit of a chicken before the egg with how do we know for sure that something digital represents something physical. And I, I think that is kind of an open question, although it does depend on the context. You know, I think maybe as an example, if we see police footage, 
right? If we see vid, vid, you know, video footage from a government source, I know me as an individual, I am more inclined to believe that, right? Regardless of what, you know, maybe the celebrity who urinated in public, regardless of what they say, you know, I, I'm more inclined to believe that than if, you know, it's some influencer on TikTok, right? You know, like that, that, I, that, that has 20,000 followers and it doesn't even have their real name on the site. So I, I think if we look more at saying, okay, you know, maybe it's not so much a question of what does, you know, what is this digital, how do we prove that a picture of this coffee mug, that this coffee mug is actually here or that, that I actually, you know, that it truly was the celebrity. I think it's more, well, how do we trust these platforms? How do, what part of our human psyche is saying, I trust that government footage more and why? And should we trust it, right? Like that, that is perhaps the more interesting question for me and holding those people accountable, um, I think we'll see a lot of, you know, but it, it kind of does depend where the public discussion goes, which is exciting. <laughs> oh man, so, so wild. It's almost like we're gonna have to mandate that we go back to analog footage and like security footage so that companies don't make up that someone they don't like broke in last night. And, you know, cause it's like, if you can make anything happen on video and it's believable or audio and it's believable, I mean, they're not going to overly use it or, or maybe they will flood the system and see what happens. Like there's just so much, and that's the thing. It's like, yeah, trust. Like that's a hundred percent what it comes down to. And it's like, who's, who, who gets to craft the story? And it's like, well, if you shove it behind a brand that everyone trusts, you know, maybe if the BBC says it, then it's, then it's good. Maybe if, you know, maybe if, I don't know, Joe Rogan says it, then it's good. Maybe if Nat Geo says it, then it's good. You know, it's just like, Yeah. Yeah. Well, part like because I I didn't know what you were working on when I saw like we're helping to solve deep fakes. I was hoping that there was like a like a technology looking for like I I was hoping you guys were looking at the ones and zeros of like video and being like okay, that pattern means fake or something. <laughs> and and I can share um the teams that are doing that and are best positioned for that are the platforms themselves, um, but also just the tech behemoths that, that can make. So Google, Apple, Microsoft, um, Facebook, they've all got, and it, I guess this is like the, the good news is that there are people working on that. There are good engineers working on that. Um, and I, I absolutely applaud any startup that, that does. I know for us, we'd like to, um, at later stages of our company, really make that investment in in machine learning at scale. Um, although we're focused on kind of the behavior of, you know, how do we make this behavior change where consumers and audience members are actively asking that question and are challenging trust because we think that has a really longstanding ability to to stop some of these effects. Although I do love the computer vision part and perhaps on another podcast, we can talk about it again in a few years when we've added that capability. All right. Well, I have to, 
I have to introduce you or ask you if you've heard of Marshall McLuhan. But uh, no, no, I don't think I have. Yeah. Okay, so um, he was a guy who kind of ushered in the prophecy of where technology was going. And I'm sure people would say like there's people before him, blah, blah, blah. But he wrote, you know, right in the generation shift from the people who came before the baby boomers to the baby boomers, like coming of age. So 1963, he wrote Understanding Media, which I actually have it right here. Um, I recommend reading it. It's interesting. It's a little dirty, but yeah. Um, he was essentially saying that like the electronic age started with the telegraph and that every technology is an extension of some aspect of ourself. So like the chairs we're sitting on extensions of our butt extensions of our back, you know, um, these, the computers are an extension of everything. And that's kind of the point is like electric electronic technologies extend our actual self or our actual nervous system. So it's like the camera is obviously allowing me to see you in Florida from Wisconsin and vice versa. So we're extending our eyes and our ears and our voice. Um, but that there's, so, so when you were talking about splitting the identity and, um, you know, that's kind of where I was thinking, it's like, what does that even mean ultimately? But, um, yeah, I recommend looking into it. The interesting thing is, is like the, well, first, the interesting thing is that the first technology that him and a lot of people who think like him trace it back to is actually language. So it's actually um, our phonetic language and how it's written, where we used to use pictorial language, hieroglyphics. Now we use, you know, phonetic, where each symbol represents a sound rather than a meaning. So, and so that relationship to the world created like history, created our form of self-identity. And um, it's interesting because, you know, the world is, or our experience is so narrative, you know, um, and culture is so narrative and it's changing the narrative and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the thing about a technology extending something, he says, is it, uh, numbs there's a numbness that comes like once a sense is extended there's a numbness associated because you're you're essentially overextended and it's like obviously it's too late because we all exist in the medium now like this is how we yeah. make our living and feed our kids and and feed ourselves. but i don't i mean if you have a take on that cool if you don't yeah read the book and i'd love to to hear what you have to say about it, but that got absolutely. And yeah. I, I'll be curious because I, I will read it. I know um, one course I took in college that was interesting to me was a study of digital identity. And in this setting, they actually started with Frankenstein mm -hmm. and showed that, you know, the technology of the book, you know, through this narrative of can a monster be human changed the way that we viewed our own humanity mm -hmm. right because i right and open question frank is hundreds of years old 
is he human, right? Is, is, is the monster human, right? Like, you know, I, um, and so with that realization kind of tracks and says, well, with each of these waves, you know, what, what we call human, similar to how, well, do we call the monster human? And now it's, do we call the robot human? Do we call the social media profile human? I think it is a fascinating question. I think, yeah, it, it's meta, right? It's very like, very much, I think it is personal to, yeah, because we, we're personal beings. So we must define it in terms of ourselves. Um, but with the numbness, I absolutely see, it's kind of like, it gets complicated. It gets messy, right? I, th I think that's kind of where, perhaps in this example, um, I, I can empathize you know, with kind of that statement of there is a risk of us losing what it means to see someone in person and to, and to have a close three-dimensional <laughs> relationship. There is a risk that in the complexity of having Facebook friends and Instagram friends and Telegram friends and all these friends that we might at net um, kind of, I think, lose some of that 3d what meaning to be connected um and to be human and i i hope to say that i'm optimistic i think that looking at it as an extension i think we as humans we we might be a little overextended mm -hmm. uh you put an ape down in front of a giant glowing screen and you know, we might just be apes playing with toys a little bit. So we might be a little overextended. However, I, I think firsthand, you know, knowing that I've been able to, to forge strong connections and do things that weren't possible, um, I think we as humans can make up for that as long as we kind of keep a dialogue about it and keep conversations about it. But no, to your point, I, and I, I am going to check out the book because I, I think it's fascinating to kind of understand how some of these you know, what to me is just like my nine to five. I mean, it's, it's not really, nine, you know, like to me is my day-to-day -day job, right? Like how does that play out on a scale that is hundreds of years old, that is bigger than one single human life or perhaps bigger than, you know, even bigger than that? I, I think that's a fascinating question. So I, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that way now and not many people used to think that way, you know? Well, I don't know. I think we're also kind of hypocrites too at the same time, because I think, you know, before writing and whatever, when people were living in the woods, I think they did think about to some degree, maybe not everyone, maybe some people were like, you know, just give me more deer. I need to feed my kids. But I think there was like a leaving things to the next generation kind of thing. And now we're just kind of like, well, it's, it's pretty much screwed. So let's just like, make something new or uh, let's terraform something new essentially. Cause I don't, I don't know. I walk through, I walk through like nature preserves around Madison and like they're surrounded by farms and suburbs. And I'm like, nice. This like 20 acres is what I'm leaving for my son. Like, you know what I mean? But not to be negative. I know that's negative and it's just, I just think yeah i mean we're in it now you know <laughs> we're at a challenging moment um yeah you know i i 
I guess, you know, part of the like trying to separate myself is okay. Perhaps every moment is a challenging moment. Perhaps you know the impression of now is only perception. But I I absolutely agree because um, I mean climate change is here, mm -hmm. right? It's coming um, within my own lifetime, right? Like it has gone from something that was actively debated, you know. And I mean it, it's it's curious living here in Miami. Um, both sides of the aisle. No, it's here. It is no longer, it's no longer, nobody's debating whether it's here or not anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, it, it's, you know, it's, so if, if um, I, I've heard an analogy of right when, when we created atomic bombs, we for the first time had the capability of destroying the entire world, mm -hmm. right? I think now we're entering a new phase of that, you know, where we're, we have to save the world from, you know, from some of the challenges that we've created, you know, both humanitarian challenges and, you know, economic challenges, um, but absolutely climate challenges. And I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm optimistic in, in human ingenuity and human creativity, although it, there's, there's a lot of kinks to work out. Yeah, I think uh, what gives me hope is seeing people exploring that edge and, you know, trying things. And, like, the negative stuff is has always, you know, the possibility of getting hit by a car has always been lingering above every individual, you know? So it's like the bad stuff will will come and and will go but it's like as we explore the edge we'll find a new we'll find a new way so yeah what excites me is people creating a new story me too awesome. we'll see we'll we'll be we'll be riding the edge evan we'll be we'll be creating them. awesome so how how can people find you guys on the nft collection space and then how if if there is a way how can they stay updated with with you and maybe the deep fake stuff yeah um i'm very active on linkedin so benny with a y uh and then pekala i think we'll have it in the show name show notes how to pronounce my last name how to put it in there um or how to spell it um birdwell solutions is the name of our development agency so birdwellsolutions.com. Um, we're also on, on LinkedIn again and other social medias. Um, yeah, we are actively onboarding influencers who have had their identities imitated. So if you or anybody you know has, has kind of said, hey, you know, somebody keeps imitating me on social media and, and whatnot, or hey, you know, somebody just maybe they successfully, you know, maybe, maybe they were frauded, right? Maybe it was somebody who unfortunately was a victim of one of these attacks, right? And, and accidentally, um, feel free to reach out to me. Also, you know, uh, at, at LinkedIn uh, is probably best. Um, Cause we, I, we'd love to help and we're onboarding influencers to help them protect their identities by giving them, by minting their identities um, onto the blockchain and verifying their information. So we'd love to help. We'd love to help anybody who wants to learn a little bit more um and certainly anybody that um has been a victim or is concerned about being a victim we'd love to help you protect your identity and protect yourself from these types of attacks cool 
Thanks, Benny. Thank you, Evan. <laughs>